You're listening to The Podcast, a talk show that's helping you to own your power, lead your life, and thrive in your career. This is a show that's for the thrivers. Yes, that's you, that person that's ready to take the next step in your career, perhaps even to lead a growing or scaling business, or to think about making a transition from where you are to where you want to be. I'm so glad that you are part of this talk show. My name is Brittany N. Cole, the CEO and founder of Career Thrivers and the host of this podcast. I cannot wait to join you on this road of thriving together. Let's dive in. In a world where organizations are having more conversations and embracing this idea of diversity, the inclusion factor is often left off the table. We're going to talk in this episode about how organizations can create a culture of inclusion where women of all hues across all intersections can actually thrive, can show up and feel like they are seen, heard, and valued inside of their organizations. So our next guest is a trailblazer in this space. She is a, she has a PhD in organizational psychology. She also consults organizations with how do you actually get to the practical? What does it look like to have a culture that is inclusive of everyone? She's a TEDx speaker and she champions this cause as a force, an author, a writer, and a senior contributor to many of the large media outlets that we'll talk about on this episode. Dr. Janice Kasamasari is here to shed light on how organizations can create a culture of inclusion where all women can thrive. Let's dive in. Well, Dr. Janice, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. I'm looking forward to getting into this conversation. And of course, you do a lot of work in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. So tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you to the work that you get to do today. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think ultimately many of us who are like in this space doing this work have experienced different forms of exclusion and othering or we witnessed it. So for me, I think watching what my parents experienced, both of them were educators and they had a lot of challenges. My dad was a professor. My mom was a French teacher and just kind of watching what they went through. I started to think about how much time we spend at work and how so many of our experiences in the workplace are just negative, right? And so when I was in school, I studied psychology, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. And then I started learning more about like organizational psychology. And I think ultimately I always wanted to figure out how to better people's experiences in the workplace because we spend so much time there. So I really think just watching my parents was the catalyst to me wanting to get into this work, me always being like the only black girl. I grew up in predominantly white spaces. So being the only black girl was like trying to figure out like, you know, all of these things, I think were all catalysts to me getting into the space. You mentioned your your parents and their career journeys and, and the connection to yours. Talk a little bit about from your experience being in corporate, working for an employer, what are some of those challenges that women face? And then how does that connect to what you see now advising organizations? Yeah, I think many of us have experienced this and and can speak to this personally but just like the there's so many invisible barriers that women especially women who hold multiple marginalized identities experience right so i was reading a story about a black woman 
who's also considered to be like an older black woman and everything that she has to experience because of her age, her race, her gender. And I think that oftentimes when we think about women's experiences, we have a very specific type of experience that we think about and consider, but we don't really consider the like more intersectional and nuanced experiences of women and how that can impact their workplace experiences, right? I saw, I met someone who does, she does work only on women who are experiencing menopause and she advises workplaces on how to be supportive to that population of women. And I never thought about that, right? I never thought about that because that's not my current reality. But when she started explaining all of the things that women who go through menopause experience, it was just like, why isn't there, why aren't there more programs that focus specifically on this particular population of women? So I think that what I see often is that there isn't like as much of a nuanced sort of programming around women's specific needs. And so I think that if we're more intentional about creating those, what we'll see is more equity and inclusion in the workplace. Yeah. And that that's so key. It's connected to, I feel like what we often share with organizations who, when you think about the spectrum of diverse identities within a corporation, the women's initiative program mm-hmm. strategy is usually at the forefront of what the organization has been doing the longest, what they're most proud of. If it's an ERG, it's the one where most of the employees uh, are members or connected to, but sometimes we miss that intersectional lens. So if there are leaders that are on, whether executive level leaders or mid-level leaders, how would you encourage them to be more thoughtful about ensuring that their gender equity strategies and programs are also intersectional? I think it sounds really simplistic, but how often are women involved in the decision-making And then are you consistently serving your uh, women employees and asking what their specific needs are? I think oftentimes what I see is that people who aren't part of a community are making decisions about that community. And so I, I love the saying, nothing about us without us. And essentially, like anytime you're creating a policy, I think the people that are directly impacted by that policy should be in the room, should be part of the decision making, or you should be taking their feedback into consideration. So it it sounds really simple, but a lot of workplaces I go into, that isn't the case. Or there's a case where there's only one woman in the room and there's five decision makers. And when you're the only person in the room, as I'm sure many of us have experienced, it can be difficult to advocate for yourself and advocate for the needs of your particular community or of any particular community. So I think being more intentional about surveying your women employees or whatever group you're assessing, like what do they need? And then making sure that there are people who are part of that group in the decision-making process. Yeah. You mentioned that as a, I'm, I'm thinking of it as like a key indicator for people to know whether or not the organization is serious about the work. What would you add to that list? Because I'm sure there are women that are listening that are thinking, okay, well, yes, my company has all of these great programs, initiatives. We're always talking about what we do for women, but my experience is different. My experience isn't aligned with the great work that we're doing. So it feels like lip service. It feels inauthentic. Mm -hmm. What would you say to that woman to ensure that she is seen and heard and how can she be an advocate so that those two connect? 
this that's actually a really great question because last week I did a workshop for a company and there was a middle manager in the room or in the workshop and she asked me a black woman and she asked me what do I do if I'm in this leadership position but I don't feel like I have the ability to fully make change right my company's doing great work but I don't get along with or I have friction with my direct manager and so one of the things that I suggested to her is finding the change agents outside of that particular manager. There may be other people in leadership that you vibe with or that you connect with. And so really like partnering with them and maybe opening up to them to see if there's you're able to uh, create a relationship so that you can be able to accomplish certain things because, you know, it can feel like there are barriers and sometimes those barriers are people, right? Especially if you are a woman and you're a woman with a certain level of power. So I think finding those change agents in leadership can be really impactful and part trying to partner with them and trying to sort of figure out like, how can I navigate this situation? And I think that that can be um, instrumental, especially if you don't necessarily like get along with the person that you report to or that you, um, that, that is your direct manager. Yeah. That can definitely have an impact on how you show up, but also how you use your voice in those settings. And you are certainly a top voice, whether it's LinkedIn or within the leadership development industry, of course, within DEI. Share with us your journey of really stepping fully into your voice. And certainly I want to acknowledge that we have women entrepreneurs that are listening. We also have women that are in corporate four to five out of 10 who have started a business. So they're doing both. And sometimes there can be that tension about like, do I step all the way into what I know to be true and share that and own my voice? Or do I kind of hold back? What has that journey been like for you? My mom always says this. I've always been like just the shy, soft-spoken, just like I'm very, um, I'm a type two person, right? My sister's very type one where she's like, everything has to, I'm very chill. And I think that I'm a recovering people pleaser, <laughs> like may, maybe many, many folks who are, who are listening. And for me, that has been um, dimming my light in different ways because I don't want to, I've been programmed to believe that as a woman, as a black woman, I can't be too loud about the things that I've accomplished, right? So sometimes when I meet people, they'll be like, why didn't you tell me that you do this or that you do that? And I just was like, oh, I didn't want to like, come off like I was bragging. But what I found has been really instrumental for me is LinkedIn because the the platform is created so that you can share your wins and share more about your career and share uh, more about your entrepreneurship journey, right? And so I think that it's not just a place for people who are looking for jobs because I always tell my friends, get on LinkedIn. They're like, I already have a job. I'm not looking for a job. I'm good. And I'm like, no, literally like, you want to, regardless of whatever industry you're in, it's helpful. I see photographers on there. I see fitness trainers on there and you can find your community of people on there. And I think it's a great way to sort of just share your wins because I think again, as women, we've been programmed to sort of hide those parts of ourselves. I saw a stat that said like, um, something like women will not apply for a job unless they feel like they have like 
90% or 100% mm-hmm. of all Check the credentials, all the men will apply regardless of if they're qualified. And so I think that LinkedIn, I found for me, is a place I can go to share, hey, these are the things that I'm doing. And it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm bragging, right? It feels like I'm sharing parts of myself that I used to hide and things that are important to sort of share with my my audience. And I feel like that has been really helpful. So I would say anyone listening to this conversation should be on LinkedIn, yes. should be connecting. <laughs> we should all be like connecting with each other. You know, so I think LinkedIn has definitely been really, really instrumental in helping me to find my voice. Hey Thriver, I'm excited for you to get your hands on your copy of The Blueprint to More Visibility and Influence. This is a powerful free resource that's designed to catapult your influence and amplify your impact in your business or company. Now, this isn't just another online guide. This is your strategic companion that's going to walk you through the world of personal branding and authentic leadership. Inside, you'll unlock essential strategies that are going to help you do a few things. One, sharpen your self-awareness and own your unique story, navigate the complexities of workplace dynamics with more confidence, elevate your presence in any room and ensure that you are not only seen, but also heard and valued. Why wait for opportunities when you hand create them? With this blueprint, you'll learn how to cultivate a personal brand that commands respect and opens the door for new opportunities. And the best part, you'll start seeing the world differently, not just as a place where you fit in, but one where you stand out. You'll transform your self-doubt into more self-assurance and turn your aspirations into to tangible achievements. So join me in our community of thrivers who are making their mark. Don't let this moment pass you by. Head on over to letsthrivetogether.com to download your free copy of The Blueprint to More Visibility and Influence today. Start your journey and let's thrive together. You and I represent a subset of women who have grown up or spent a significant amount of time in a certain professional development context, whether it's academia, whether it's the pharmaceutical healthcare industry for me, and then we've taken the leap into building a business full time. So on this same note, I want to talk about, we talk about, you know, bring your authentic self for work. Organizations need to create a culture of belonging. But the truth of the matter is for a large portion of their women, they also have a business. They're also an entrepreneur. What are your thoughts on how organizations can be more inclusive and accepting of women who have dual aspirations in that way so that they can show up boldly and promote their business on LinkedIn, even though they may be an employee at your organization. Mm -hmm. I love when I see businesses being really sort of like happy and excited about seeing their employees go into entrepreneurship, because the fact of the matter is most of us, most employees are, have a side hustle or have, you know, are doing something on the side. And I, I've seen companies embrace that for employees, but I've also seen companies where a lot of my friends, you know, I have a friend who is, um, like a senior leader in HR and he is, um, a recruiter. He's a tech recruiter and he's worked for all these, you know, Fortune 500 companies and he has his own like consulting business on the side. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Like you should be talking about it more on your social media. And he's like, no, I don't want my job to know. He has like a podcast. He has all these things and he uses like a pseudonym and he doesn't want his job to know that he has all of these like aspirations on the side. It's not really even a conflict of interest because his clients are a little different from who he serves in his corporate job. But it's just like those, a lot of corporate environments aren't ones that encourage people to have side hustles without realizing that like us having 
these other outlets, whether it's like painting or making, you know, I, I listened to a podcast about a woman who has a popcorn business, right? Whether it's like a popcorn business or painting or what, whatever it is, I think being able to nurture employees passions is really important and really does foster that sense of belonging, right? If you know that your employee loves to bake, maybe they have, you know, they sell baked goods. When you have a company event inviting that employee to bake and maybe offering them payment, right? And so I think that I don't see that as often. More often I see, especially large companies being like, we think that if you have a side side job, it's going to take away from your attention, from your main gig, right? And I think that we're able to, we're multifaceted people. We're all able to multitask. And I, I actually don't think it's healthy sometimes to have just a hundred percent of your focus on your job without any sort of creative outlets, not necessarily creative outlets that you make money on. Cause I think we are also in an era where we feel like everything has to be monetized, right? Maybe you just like making jewelry and you don't, you don't do it to make a profit out of it. But I think that finding ways to like encourage people's passion projects, right? I know we, we know many of you may know about the story with Google where a lot of the things that we use now, like Gmail and a lot of the like Google related products were created because they had this like 80 20 rule where 80% of the time employees had to focus on whatever their tasks were, and then the other 20%. So it was like Monday through Thursday, you do your job. And then on Friday, you can do whatever passion projects you want. And what ended up coming out of that was like things like Gmail and all of these other like Google-related products that we use when you're nourishing people's passions and allowing them to be creative. I think a lot of beautiful things can come out of that. So I would love to see more companies embracing that. But I think the reality of it is leaders and people just have this think that you're kind of competing. You know, it's like competing priorities. If, if Brittany's over here focused on making clothes, she's not going to be focused on her job. So I, I think embracing that is what's really going to foster that sense of belonging. Yeah. It's a very fixed mindset approach to people. And I think it's an often overlooked part of the inclusion conversation because we hear DEI and we automatically think primary dimensions of diversity. But DEI also incorporates that aspiring entrepreneur who, exactly to your point in the Google example, could actually bring innovation to your business if they had the room to own all of their brilliance and still be connected to your organization. I think that's a huge miss. And, and I, I, I would be remiss if I did not also bring up the fact that there are two stats that we don't often correlate, one in particular. So one is that for the last seven years, Black women have been the leading demographic starting businesses. And we say, okay, that's great over there. How does that connect to corporate? Well, it connects to corporate because if you look at your attrition numbers, could it be, question, that the demographic that's leading the turnover in your organization is Black women? Those two things are connected. So creating that culture of inclusion where women can show up, and even if they have an entrepreneurial aspiration, they can kind of you know, not have to hide that it impacts other areas of what they do. So with that in mind, and really helping leaders that are listening, cultivate this sense of inclusion, that's broader than I think some of the ways that we typically think about it, it includes having to dismantle some systemic barriers. Can you talk to us a little bit about ways that you've seen organizations do that successfully to really create authentic belonging for employees? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's such a great point that I didn't 
I don't think I made that connection between those stats about Black women being the fastest group of entrepreneurs and also the fact that there's probably, when you look at turnover rates, it's probably, you know, Black women. So thank you for making that connection. But I think as far as like barriers that I've seen, a lot of it to me has stemmed from a lack of education, right? Someone might engage in, I know some people don't like the term microaggression, but some people might engage in like an exclusionary behavior. And a lot of times it's because they just don't know. You're not in community with any black people, right? So you might engage in, you know, or you might say something, right? Where I've had, I I don't mind, or I didn't mind when I was in academia. I, I was the only black woman in my department. And, you know, so Every two months, I have a different hairstyle. I change my hair a lot. And so my colleagues would be really fascinated with these hairstyles, right? Because these are like, um, these are mostly men, white men in their 50, high, you know, high 50s and uh, early 60s. And so I don't know, in their day, maybe some of these styles weren't, weren't things that were, that they saw. So they're really fascinated with my hair. Um, and so if, when they have questions, I don't really mind when they're like, oh, you know, this is really interesting. They might say something like, how do you wash it? You know, but like a lot of times the, they might say something right. That I could consider to be a microaggression. And I recognize it's their ignorance and it's their lack of understanding and awareness. And so I think having opportunities for people to learn is, is really important, right? Where I was just part of an organization that did a discussion about, um, black women's experiences with hair discrimination. And I think that that was re- a really powerful conversation where their black women employees were able to open up and share. This is how hair bias affects me in the workplace. And this is how I've been affected outside of the workplace, right? So opening up conversations to have more nuanced, you know, discussions where you're talking about things like hair discrimination. I don't see that a lot. I see things like inclusion for employees, but we don't understand that inclusion and equity can look and feel different for for different people. So I think our conversations and our learning has to be more intentional and more nuanced and look at like, what are the ways that people are being impacted by different systems and what are the barriers that they experience and how can we provide employees with actionable steps to address these sorts of things. So I think a lot of things stem from just a lack of education. And then also, I don't see a lot of accountability measures when I work with companies where, you know, I might help them implement a training system or I might help them uh, create an employee resource group, right? Or I might do a workshop with their leaders. But I always tell them that if you don't have any accountability measures, you might sit here and the information goes into one ear and out the other. And then who's to say that in three months or six months, you're not reverting back to the behaviors that you essentially like hired me to help you fix. So I think really making sure that like, if you want to address barriers, you have accountability measures in place. And that could be something as simple as having an anonymous feedback system that you've integrated where any employee can go into the system. It could be like a Google form. They can go in and they can say, hey, I had this experience with this manager and I would like it to be addressed, right? And if I know as a manager, there's this anonymous system so that if I engage in bad behavior, 
there's checks and balances in place, I'm going to be less likely to engage in that behavior. And so I, I don't see that all the time, especially with, I work with some smaller organizations too. I don't always see that with organizations and with startups. It's like, we want to grow as fast as possible, but it's important to put those systems in place so that in, inevitably when there is an equitable behavior, there's a way to sort of address it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it reminds me, we have an episode on the show. Check it out if you're listening in and haven't tuned in. But Dr. Bowtie Todd, we were talking about the differences between DEI initiatives and then DEI as a function of the business. So having a more strategic approach so that those one-offs can actually be sustained. It's so critical. Mm-hmm. So we know education is important to you. You are an esteemed writer. You are senior contributor at Forbes. You're published in Harvard Business Review. Congratulations. I was Thank you. so excited when I saw that. It's so incredible. And then you're also an upcoming third time published author. So we have sitting with us, if you're listening in, two of your books. So Dirty Diversity and The Pink Elephant. Make sure you check out The Pink Elephant newsletter on Dr. Janice's LinkedIn. And you have a third book that's coming out. Talk to us about why this topic of decentering whiteness and what are you hoping that readers take from the new book? Really excited about uh, the third book. So it's called Decentering Whiteness in the Workplace. And anytime I tell people the title, they have like this look on their face where it's like, oh, interesting, right? And I think that like in the last three years, right, since the murder of George Floyd, DEI has really shifted And what I've noticed is that a lot of companies that engaged in different DEI programs and put certain measures in place, some of these or a lot of these DEI programs haven't necessarily been successful. And I think that a large part of the reason is because we're not really talking about the kind of the elephant in the room Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the ways that we prioritize whiteness in our systems and in our structures. So one of the examples I gave in the book was I had a chance to interview this young woman. She is um, Indian and she shared that she, she had a post that I found her because she had a post that went viral on LinkedIn. And in the post, she talked about how her company denied her a bereavement leave because she, her uncle had passed away. And in her culture, uncles are immediate family. But in her company's policy, immediate family includes step-parents, parents, and children and stepchildren. And she was saying, in our family structures, Indians, in Indian culture, divorce isn't really something that's common. Right. And so this idea of stepchildren and step parents being immediate family is a very American thing. And so even in like the way policies are written, you don't think about like a bereavement policy being centered in a white family structure, but that's a very sort of white Euro American centered policy. And so that she was denied the bereavement leave by her company. I think once the post went viral, they kind of went back and changed the policy, but. That's something super simple where it's like, what are all of the ways that whiteness is like baked into our workplace systems and structures? And when I was researching for the book, I saw a lot of books on white supremacy and on whiteness, but I didn't see any. I saw one book on 
whiteness in veganism. It was like more of a textbook, but I didn't see any books that focused specifically on whiteness in, in the workplace. And so I was like, oh, this is something that really needs to be focused on because we talk a lot about equity and anti-racism, but we don't talk about the ways that even we as people from marginalized groups prioritize and center whiteness. So when I told one of my best friends that I was writing this book and I told her the title, um, she's black. And she was like, oh, so you're writing a book for white people. And I was like, it's funny you say that because we as black people can also center whiteness, right? And so that myth that it's this a book like this would only be speaking to white people is part of the reason why I need I felt I needed to write it. So in the book I talked about in my life the many ways that I've centered whiteness, right? And then how that has shown up in the workplace and also like how to actually go about decentering whiteness. So I think we don't talk enough about this subject. That's why I felt it was so important to write this book. Yeah, I'm excited to get my hands on my copy. So make sure you pre-order, get your copy. And I'm excited about your launch. And yeah, you mentioned ways that you have. And I can think back to my own corporate career. I spent the first nine years of my career in sales. And at that time, pharmaceutical sales meant you're in a suit every day. It also meant there was a look. Like mm-hmm. I vividly remember our training on executive presence and everything about it. Like I remember having this pressure of like, speaking of hair, I need to be in my slick bob, whether mm-hmm. I got to put it on or straighten it, mm-hmm. <laughs> straighten my own, you know, texture mm-hmm. of hair Monday through Friday. No, no exceptions. It doesn't matter. I can do braids on the weekend or I'm going on vacation, but like when Monday rolls around, I need to be back in the sleek bob mm-hmm. because that's what is the acceptable. look is right, yeah. right, right. So like, and that's one of the ways. And so I think the work that you do is just so critical to your point for not only, you know, white professionals, white leaders who are allies and want to be more inclusive leaders, but all of us. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, uh, I'll ask you a question, really thinking about the women that are listening to this episode and really just maybe a a call to action for us as women to be better allies of other women. I think when we think about, you know, moving women forward, we automatically think about what men can do, Mm -hmm. but there's such a vast opportunity for us as women, Mm -hmm. whether it's whatever, you know, across any uh, intersection, but how we can be better advocates, better allies, better supporters of other women. What advice would you share to the women that are listening? That's a great question. And I would actually revert back to the wonderful uh, Audre Lorde, who has this quote, which I'm going to completely butcher, but she talked about, I think it was in the book. Well, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but she had a quote that basically says, um, revolutionary change isn't just about sort of exiting these um, environments that are oppressive, but it's also about interrogating the piece of the oppressor that is buried deep within us. And I think that we don't spend enough time interrogating how we as women can also cause harm to other women, how we've sort of internalized the patriarchy and whiteness and even, you know, just all these systems of oppression that we have sort of had to navigate and we, because we haven't dealt with, we're regurgitating onto other women and younger generations. And so I think really thinking about 
the ways that you've internalized oppressive beliefs. I know for me, I come from a very traditional household and I saw certain things that my dad would do. And now growing up, I'm like, I have certain expectations of how women should show up. And I've had to have a reckoning with myself because a lot of those beliefs were very problematic. So I think that like, how often asking yourself how often you stop and really interrogate some of the oppressive beliefs and viewpoints that you may have internalized about women and really working to disrupt and interrupt those beliefs is, is so important. So I would say definitely thinking about how even though you are a woman and you've experienced harm, you can also cause harm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think it, we hear the word oppressor and sometimes we don't associate with that with our own actions because mm-hmm. we think it's the, the big things, but it's the little things, you know, it's things like you've shared something with someone once and then you say it five more times as if they didn't get it the first time, mm-hmm. or you have a thought about a woman that you just met mm-hmm. and you've never had an interaction with her, but it's based on an interaction that you've had with a woman that's like her. Mm-hmm. So it shows up in these small, subtle ways, but I think it's critical if we're going to create a culture of belonging, create a culture that's more inclusive and inviting of all women that we address those things. So final question for you, of course, have to ask you this, what does thriving mean to you? I love this question. I I think um, thriving used to mean having my being able to have my time back, right? Because as a um, being in academia and as a full time professor, even on the weekends, I had to check my email because a student might have an issue, and so I felt like my time wasn't my own. And I think even when you're in like a partnership, you sometimes it can feel like your needs are being put above somebody else's, or somebody else's needs, excuse me, are being put above your own needs. So I, it used to be being able to have my time back, but to me now thriving means, it doesn't feel like I'm thriving if everyone around me is not. So I feel like being able to see the people around me being able to thrive, right? In whatever ways that looks like for them, being free to show up as who they are. And if I can play whatever role I can in in that and being instrumental in that, whether it's like amplifying somebody's voice or having a conversation about why something was problematic or wasn't problematic, I think that is what thriving really means to me. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I hope that you took as much from that episode as I did to not only be inspired, but to actually move towards action. And I want to help you do that. So be sure that you head on over to careerthrivers.com forward slash podcast and download our Thrivers Guide to take your career and leadership to the next level. Share this episode with a friend or a colleague, subscribe, rate and review. And I cannot wait to see you inside the next episode.